All right. Good to see you guys here tonight. We uh, we had a new face on stage, if you didn't notice. So, uh, Shannon, welcome to Alamo Stone. Thank you for coming to to lead us in worship. It's you got a the Lord has gifted you with a powerful, beautiful voice. So, thank you for coming to share your giftedness with us tonight. Uh, we have already ushered in 2017, and it's, it's kind of. I'm kind of perplexed over the new year because I can't believe it's already 2017. And at the same time, I can't believe it's only the 14th because the year is off and running, you know. Uh, so just kind of in between there somewhere. But with, with every new year, we typically start a new sermon series. And so uh, we'll do that tonight. We're kicking off a new series. It's called The King's Speech. We'll be spending the next several weeks, a couple of months probably, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's, it's, I pray, will be uh, a time of great learning and being encouraged and challenged in the Word. Um, the sermon series, The King's Speech, is actually, this, that sh that's the title of a movie that came out maybe five years ago, six years ago, maybe. Anyone see that movie? I actually have not seen it yet, so who can tell us what the movie's about, The King's Speech? Marcus, you got it. <coughs> Okay. He has to give a speech to his whole nation, and so the movie's about him overcoming his speech impediment. Yes, very good. So it's about, anyone know what leader it's about? <laughs> King George the Sixth, and what does he have to give this impassioned speech about? What's going on, anyone know? His brother's giving up the throne. He's taking over, and if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I think like he has to kind of rally the nation to go to battle with Nazi Germany. And so, yeah, he has a serious speech impediment, and so he goes through some unorthodox uh, training methods to be able to deliver this rousing speech. Haven't seen the movie, and I'm not a historian, so I'm assuming it was just a fabulous speech that just knocked him out, and they, you know, <coughs> went on to war with great, you know, fervor. Speaking of leaders of nations delivering speeches, is that what happened, by the way? Anyone know? Like in the movie, did they get that far? Okay. Speaking of leaders of nations who give great speeches, President Obama is on his way out of office. And uh, <clears throat> quite honestly, there are a lot of things I really like about President Obama. Um, and, and probably the thing I most admire about President Obama is his, he's just a gifted public speaker, right? So I think you guys know, I intentionally try not to keep up with the news too much because uh, I just try not to. Uh, so I didn't realize he was giving his farewell address the other night, and I turned the TV on and caught the last maybe 10 or 15 minutes of his, uh, of his address. And uh, as, as I often am when I'm listening to him, I was just like, wow, this guy can really bring it, you know? Um, and so the part that I caught, in case you, you watched it, uh, he, it was at the end of his speech, and he was talking about um, what it means to be a a citizen of the United States, how to be a good citizen, citizen of the United States. And one of the things he encouraged us to do is like to stop arguing with people on the internet and actually have real life conversations with real breathing humans, you know, sitting in front of us, which I thought was uh, really good advice. Um, but he, he made this statement. He reminded us that the most important title is not president, but citizen. Now that man, that's a, that's a great point. Like just that the hairs on my arms stood up. Don't have hair on my head or that might have stood up too. He just, like, I just love listening to him. In fact, um, you know, 
you can probably guess I don't agree with a lot of the policies that President Obama, you know, uh, enacted. But I still like if you don't find some just amazing qualities in the man, you're just not looking hard enough. You know what I'm saying? One of the things I wish he had done more of in his eight years was speak, speak more, you know, like to, because he can just inspire people, you know, and that's, that's one of the marks of a truly great leader is, is with words he can inspire or she can inspire people. So as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we're going we're gonna, to uh, listen to not the words of the president, but the words of a king who goes by the name of Jesus, who we'll see shares his own, certainly in, in the passage tonight, the first 12 verses, who shares his own qualities or characteristics of what it means to be a citizen. But not a citizen of the United States or any other country, but a citizen of the kingdom of God. So uh, turn with me, if you're not already there, if you have your Bibles, turn to, to Matthew chapter 5, and, and we're going to see what the king has to say about being a citizen in his kingdom. And as you're turning there, since we're starting a new series, let me give a little context. So remember, the, the purpose of Matthew's writing is to present Jesus as king, right? So in chapter 1, Matthew gives the genealogy of Christ, and as he lays it out, he traces his, his lineage to King David and even refers to uh, Jesus as the son of David. In chapter 2, we have the Magi seeking after the boy who was born king of the Jews. And in chapters 3 and 4, Matthew begin, um, Jesus begins his public ministry. And he begins in uh, verse 17 of chapter 4 by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in, in chapter 19 of, of verse 19 of chapter 4, he calls his disciples, his first disciples. He says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So he's beginning his ministry, and we're actually going to back up a little bit. We'll read in chapter 4, verse 23. This is what it says. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were, who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So just a little context. Jesus has started his ministry. He's healing people. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's teaching. And the multitudes are coming to him. What specifically does it say that they're coming to him for? Verse 24. For healing, right? They all want to... Can't blame them. They all want to be healed, right? So they're, the crowds are coming out to him. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 5. Um, and it brings us actually to, this is the, the longest recorded teaching of Jesus in the scriptures. The Sermon on the Mount. It's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so I thought, huh, that's it. Let, let me see. I want to time myself. And I'm going to read it at just a normal pace as if I were speaking this. And I want to see how long it would take Jesus to deliver this sermon. It took 10 minutes and 55 seconds. Just reading at a normal pace. And I did it out loud, like, you know, not reading into my head, but like reading out loud. 10 minutes and, and 55 seconds, which made me wonder, if Jesus' longest message as given to us in the scriptures is just under 11 minutes, then why do I and other preachers feel the need to speak for so long? 
And I'm sure you probably wonder the same thing. Why does he talk for so long? And so I say that jokingly, but I, I do have to say, uh, it, it strikes me, I don't know, as being, I don't know, a little strange. You know, like, this, this is probably maybe his most beloved message, his longest message for sure. And it only took him 11 minutes to, you know, to speak it. And, and, and like, we should just be, I'm, I'm just, I was overwhelmed, quite honestly, with, with the thought of me expounding on what, what the king of kings and lord of lords had to say in his longest message. And, uh, you know, I mean, seriously, guys, I would, and, and it's not that I'm like this, you know, uh, not like it's the first time I've been like this, but really like getting into, into the words of Christ spoken, I was like, who am I? You know, like, who am I to be, to be teaching on the teachings of Christ? I, I'm just a, a broken, finite, sinful man. How and why would God choose me to stand before you and talk about what Jesus says? I, I was, you know, and, and, and am just humbled and almost embarrassed, I think might be the right word. You know, and uh, in fact, so let's, let's actually read just verse 1 and maybe 2. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus sees the crowds coming to be healed, and so he goes up to the mountain, and, and his disciples come along with him, and he, he sits down, which was the posture of teachers back in the day. And so his disciples are closest around him. The multitudes are kind of on the outside looking in. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, meaning his disciples. But what's interesting is, is then if you go back to the very end of chapter 7, so Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? But there's a big crowd that's, they're not his followers, but they came for healing. So they're, they're there for a purpose, and they're going to hear teaching. So they're on the kind of just on the outskirts, looking in close enough to hear. And this is what, it, what Matthew tells us when Jesus is done with his 11-minute sermon. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. <clears throat> and I just, you know, seriously, like I stand before you and, and am humbled and, and I just feel so small, if I can just be honest with you. And I, I hope that that is how we all feel when we approach God's word, that we just feel small and that it overwhelms us and, and just infuses us and overtakes us. So with that, um, I think it would probably be really good if we prayed. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. <clears throat> Father, I'm just amazed that you, the God of the universe, the, the Lord of all creation, would, would choose to have men write your word so that we could know more about you, so that we could actually know you. And Lord, it, it is humbling to open your word, to read from it, and to even try to teach from it. So Lord, I just pray that tonight your spirit would be welcome here into our hearts, that the word spoken would penetrate us and change us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the first 12 verses. 
I'm going to, we're not going to look at every verse. We're, we're in the Beatitudes. We're not going to look at every Beatitude one by one. Okay, so we're going to read 12 verses. I'm going to make some comments maybe on like the structure or kind of format of the Beatitudes. You have homework, which is to go read them and spend time in the Word this week. So I'm going to pick maybe like just three Beatitudes I'm going to just kind of talk about specifically. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Thank you. <coughs> Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's stop right there. So just a couple of, of quick points on kind of the structure of the, the Beatitudes. You might have noticed that the, the first Beatitude in verse 3 and the eighth Beatitude, which is in verse 10, uh, they both end the same way. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and those are the only two Beatitudes where like the, the promise that's given is present tense. Right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, where the others say shall be. Right? And so uh, a point I want to make is that at, as followers of Christ, these people have come to follow him, his disciples, we are citizens of heaven today. We don't have to wait for that. It's already been given to us. Um, but the other Beatitudes are kind of future tense right they shall inherit the earth they shall receive mercy they shall see god so those six beatitudes that are kind of sandwiched in between they're future tense but we but because christ came the first time and he said as we read it in uh verse 17 for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he brought his kingdom to earth so we experience some we experience these blessings in some partiality some some in partially there we go. We experience them partially now, but we will experience them fully in an age to come when he returns. Okay, so uh, I won't go into, into, we'll look at some of those later, but just a very quick example. Verse 7, right, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's a future, sounds like a, something in the future, and it is, but it's also something present. So let's do, by show of hands, who here is a citizen of God's kingdom raising okay who in here has already experienced mercy someone who's brave enough stand up and tell us how you've received mercy already <laughs> I'm sorry not, dead yet. not <laughs> thank you Gary not dead yet good <laughs> praise God every day is a gift good thank you Donnie
Yeah, absolutely. So, so even though it says they shall receive mercy, we've already received mer mercy in this lifetime, but we will receive it in full when Christ returns. On the judgment day, we will experience full mercy because we will not get the judgment that we deserve, right? So the word blessed here means happy or uh, fortunate, but it's not the kind of happy that we typically, you know, kind of think about uh, in, in America culture today, right? Because our view of happiness, our definition is, it's kind of like, it's temporary, it's circumstantial. You know, I'll give you an example. If you're a Cowboys fan, you were happy last Sunday when they won. And if you're a Cowboys fan, you're not going to be happy tomorrow when Green Bay beats them and knocks them out of the playoff, right? <laughs> happiness is, is, in our view, in our finite thinking, is, is circumstantial. But Jesus talks about that word blessed, it, it is that inner, uh, it's that inner, eternal, complete joy and peace, regardless of circumstances, right? And if you think about, if you were to think about what makes people happy, if you just did a survey and asked people, hey, what, do you, what would it take to make you happy? What do you think most people might, might say? Money. Money. Family? Family, good. Yeah, I think those are probably the, the two main ones, right? Money and relationships, right? Look at what, did you notice what Jesus said will make you happy, will give you happiness, will, will make you a, a happy citizen of the kingdom? Verse three, being poor in spirit. Verse four, mourning. Verse 10, being persecuted. Verse 11, being insulted. Being poor in spirit, being in mourning being persecuted, having insults thrown at you? Like, I don't think most people would view those things as being, as bringing happiness. But that's how Jesus is. Like, you know, the gospel is, it's just so, it's almost like a, a, it's a paradox. You know, like it's just so counter to our culture and, and our way of, of thinking. So how can, you, how can we be poor in spirit, be in mourning, be persecuted, insulted, and yet be happy. I think the key is in verse 3. So that's, the, that's the first beatitude that we will look at. It's understanding verse 3 because the first beatitude really lays the foundation for the others. The others are built upon this first one. So as you have your homework this week, I want you to just start with, with the first one. In my poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God of heaven. So who are the poor in spirit and what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think we know what it means to be poor. Poor. I got, I, like I got nothing. I can't even go Chick-fil-A unless I see Kyle when I get there because I got, I got nothing to offer the, the girl behind the counter, right? So this is what it means to be poor in spirit. You got nothing spiritually to offer to God you have nothing to you have nothing to give to your own salvation try as you might to be good you know you can't you are spiritually broken you are sinful you are empty spiritually before God and, and if you think I'm beating you up don't worry I'm, that's me too 
Because it's easy to come to Alamo Stone or wherever you might worship regularly and you might see other people and go, oh man, you know what? Like, I might not have it all together, but at least not as bad as that dude over there because I know what he's got going on in his personal life. I, I can't believe he sets foot in a church. If we compare ourselves to others, we might actually think we're not empty spiritually, but think we might actually be someone. The problem is, y'all are not like the standard. God is. We stand before a holy, righteous, gracious, loving judge. And we go, oh, I have nothing to bring before him. Totally at his mercy. When we see God's holiness, it exposes our own sinfulness. It, it is our spiritual poverty and the self-realization that comes when we see God for who he is. The more we know about his character, the more it reveals our own brokenness and sinfulness. The poor in spirit. Reminds me of, of the parable that Jesus told in, in Luke 18. I'm going to flip there. You can if you want to. It's Luke 18. <clears throat> Verse 10. This is Jesus talking. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. See, the, the Pharisee in that parable is, is the picture of someone who plays church in America today. Right? He shows up, he, he comes dressed in nice clothes, he acts like he's got it all together, he doesn't have any problems, he even praise he might even fast every now and then he gives money to the church but he's not righteous like he's pretending to be he's just self-righteous i i can tell you i remember <clears throat> i was in high school and i went to a summer camp i think it might have been like for a week three five days i don't even know what it was a few days <clears throat> and i i think it was like the junior civitan y'all know jun junior civitans at all okay it was a club, uh, like a high school club, and they had like the state meeting in the, the summer. And so I went, and I was the only student from my school that went. And so while I was at this, this camp, I met some students from around the state, and we kind of had this little group that hung out. <coughs> and there was this girl in, in our little group named Jeannie, and a real sweet girl, had a kind of a, uh, kind of a squeaky little voice, you know, that you just could... Like, you've never heard anyone speak like her, just very unique, you know? And so um, she was in our little group of friends, and we all exchanged addresses and stuff, because back then, we actually used to, like, sit down with a piece of paper and a pen, and we'd actually write letters to other people, and we'd fold them up and put them in an envelope and put a stamp on it, and the postman would come, pick it up on his horse, and put it in the satchel, and he'd write off. You know? <clears throat> but Jeannie and I wrote to each other maybe once or twice, and that was it, because, you know, when you're, whatever, 16, you, you're not going to, that's a commitment when you're 16, just two letters and, 
and you're done. Well, lo and behold, fast forward a few years, and I'm probably a sophomore in college at North Carolina State University. And uh, I'm with some friends at a party. We go to a party at an, at an off-campus uh, apartment. <coughs> college students, please do not follow my example, okay? So we go to this party, and lo and behold, I see Jeannie there. I haven't seen her, I don't know, four years, however long it was since we had met, you know, and, and when I see her, she's completely wasted, like she's gone, and she's hanging all over this dude, and I don't know if she, at, in, at the moment, like I was thinking, I wonder if she uh, remembers me, and I thought, well, I don't even think she's noticed me, you know, like she's, she's just totally wasted. And so, you know, we, my buddies and I hang out at the party for a while. And then as we're leaving, going towards the door, the stairs going upstairs are like right by the door, you know. And as I'm walking towards the door, I see this guy carrying Jeannie up, up the stairs. And so my buddies and I left and fast forward again. So now I'm probably 24 years old, maybe, and I'm plugged into a local church and I'm active in the the young singles class and uh <clears throat> probably 40 50 you know young singles in the class and wouldn't you know Jeannie walks in the door one morning with the one of her girlfriends i guess they're looking for a church and so i see her and uh we're all kind of just you know mingling before class gets started and she comes over to me and she says hey wes uh, my name is Jeannie. do you remember me we we met in high school at a summer camp. And I said, no, I don't remember you. Because see, she remembered me from summer camp. I remembered her from seeing her drunk at a party. Which, is, which by the way, is not an excuse to deny knowing her. Like I was, you know, look, I know. Like I'm standing in a church building where the gospel is proclaimed and lived out. And here this girl is coming to me going, hey, uh, don't I know you? We met in high school. We even And, and I said, no, I, I don't think so. And she says to me, uh, oh, really? Because I think we, like, we might have even written to each other a couple of times. And I said, no, I, I don't remember. And she turned and walked away. She never came back. You see, <clears throat> I was not poor in spirit. I was proud in spirit. And we wore name tags in that singles class. Mine should have said Pharisee, because that's what I was. I, I, I am, you can tell, like, my voice is, is even shaking now telling that story. Like, I am embarrassed at, you know, just what a self-righteous jerk I was on that morning um i mean it's been 20 plus years since that happened and i still look back and can only shake my head at uh <laughs> just uh what a and, and i'll be not what a jerk i was you know i was not poor in spirit and so the first characteristic of someone who is a citizen of God's kingdom is that they must be poor in spirit. Because remember, we read it in chapter 4 when Jesus 
starts his ministry, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, if we're not poor in spirit, we will not repent. You, we have to recognize our own brokenness, our own sinfulness in order to repent. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are to be poor in spirit, which will produce in us a supreme happiness. That regardless of the circumstances, is there. It's, it's a contentment, a fulfillment. <clears throat> you know, there was, a, there was actually a survey conducted of over 50,000 people. And the question was, what makes you happy? Or if you're not happy, what do you think would make you happy? As you can imagine, there were other questions, right? But that was one of them. As you can imagine, uh, the people that fell on the lower end of the economic scale all said what? Money. And they could even like write answers. If I, if I won the lottery, right? They just want money to come pouring down in their life somehow, make them happy. But what do you think the wealthiest, the people actually fell into the, the wealthy bracket, what do you think they said would make them happy? <coughs> Experience? Time? Relationships? Mr. C? Family? You know what it was? Kevin, say it out loud. More money. People who are wealthy said what would make them happy because they're not happy is more money. Do you know the highest suicide rate is in the wealthiest, I think, 2% of the population? People, and you know, you've heard stories about like if you just Google like what's happened to lottery winners, it ain't happiness, right? And, and yeah, it's like, it, it's just, it's the thinking of the world that something outside of us Something material, a person or a thing that we can touch will make us happy. That is, a, that is a lie straight from the enemy. Satan would have us believe that we could find our happiness in, in relationships or in possessions or even in you know, success as we define it. But here's the, the challenge, church. That's not just the thinking of the world, but that's actually thinking that has permeated the church and the lives of believers. Right? I mean, if... If we hadn't talked about this up to now, and, I, and if, you know, I ran into you at H-E-B, and I said, hey, man, just what would it take to make you happy? Like, what would you sincerely answer? How would you answer that question, right? If I hit the lottery, or at least he had enough, won enough money to get out of debt, then, then I could be happy. Or if I could find a better job, one that I enjoyed, and I could make more money, so I could pay off my debt. If I just had one more pair of black shoes, I would be happy. If I had a bigger house, or maybe if I had a different spouse, right? Look, th those lies have infiltrated the church, because how many believers do you know, churchgoers, who've left their spouses for someone else thinking that they'll be happy with some other person? So if you're sitting here tonight and you think there's you're going to find contentment in something outside of you, some material thing or other person. The king has spoken and he says otherwise. So in order to find happiness, you've got to realize your own spiritual bankruptcy. And once we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, 
That leads us to verse 4, the second bad view that we're going to look at. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a spiritual mourning that citizens of heaven should experience. It should be a part of our lives that we mourn over our sin. We realize our brokenness, our sinfulness, that no matter how hard we try to be good and to not sin, we will continue to sin. And if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, that should grieve you and it should grieve me. Your sin should grieve you. It should break your heart. My sin should break my heart. Because it is our sin that Jesus went to the cross for. And not just that, but think about the impact that your sin has, not just on you and your relationship with God, but think about the impact your sin very practically has on people around you, people who love you. As citizens of God's kingdom, we should be mourning over our own sin first, but also just over the sin that exists in this broken, messed up world that we live in. I mentioned to you earlier that, that we get a taste of these promises of these blessings now partially but we will experience them fully in the age that is to come so this one about being comforted is a great example we are comforted today and we sang about it right in knowing that jesus shed his blood for us on the cross that is comforting to know but we will also be comforted in the day when the king returns the king who gave this sermon on the mount. And he will make all things right. All things will be made right. And there will be no more sin to break our hearts. And he will wipe every tear from your eye. The next one I want to look at is actually down in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. One of the things that we see as we progress through, right? So, so it starts with being... Uh, poor in spirit and then mourning for your sin and we work ourselves down to being pure in heart is that once we mourn over that sin and we experience comfort we ask God to give us a new heart like we can't clean our own heart it's dark and it's filthy and it's dirty and only God can cleanse us David in Psalm 51 wrote create in me a pure heart O God you know there is a difference between purity of heart and purity of behavior. And the gospel of King Jesus is worried about purity of heart first. If he, if he was impressed with purity of behavior, he would have adored the Pharisees, but he did not. He condemned them. In fact, let me read for you Matthew chapter 23. I'll flip there real quick. Matthew 23. 25, this is what <clears throat> Jesus says to the Pharisees. Think about, as I read, purity of heart versus purity of behavior. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Jesus is more concerned with purity of our hearts. And if we are pure in heart, if God gives that clean, pure heart, that's a promise. We shall see 
God. In the present, partially. And in the future, when the king returns, fully. So how do we see God now in life today? Anyone want to take a stab at that one? How do you see God today? <clears throat> That's all right. I, I, wasn't, I didn't send this question out in advance, so <clears throat> I didn't expect you to come ready to answer. But anyone want to take, take a stab at it? Yes, absolutely. So in creation, in how he moves and works in our lives, how we see him in other people. Thank you, Karina. So <clears throat> I'll share just a recent example. So uh, many of you know, but some of you don't know, that my wife and I, we recently started fostering kids. So we are with a, a foster care agency here in San Antonio where we get to provide short-term foster care for kids who have come from Central America into the U.S. And so it's short-term because they're going to be united with family members, right? And so if you were here last week, um, you got to meet. So the, the tallest one, I'm sorry, the tallest, oh. <coughs> the tallest one next to my wife is Wendy. She was our first foster daughter. So we got to see her again last week, which was just pure joy. But then last week, we also provided respite care for these two girls here in the front. The tallest one with the black shirt with purple letters. Her name is, is Jamie. She's eight years old. The little one is her six-year-old sister, Eileen. And so uh, <clears throat> they're just sweet girls, man. We had them from Friday night till Monday morning. But uh, here's what happened. So when they lived in El Salvador, if you try to talk to Eileen, you didn't get very far with her, if you notice, right? So these girls... Eileen is Spanish-speaking only. Actually, they're both Spanish-speaking only. The oldest one understands English. Like, I could talk to her and say something to her in English, and then she would understand, and she'd respond in Spanish, and I would go, sorry, lo siento. I'm sorry, I don't understand you. No entiendo. Um, but just sweet girls. But what happened was, uh, the little one is six years old. She's special needs. So she, developmentally, is about 18 to 24 months old. So what happened is when they were in El Salvador, their uncle owned a, or owns, you know, a, a auto shop of some kind. I don't know what that would look like in El Salvador, but he owns a little, you know, has a garage, works on cars. And so when uh, Eileen was somewhere around 18 to 24 months old, she's in the garage uh, and she saw a liquid that she just assumed was a drink. And so she drank some kind of acid that impaired her. And so what we were told was that, like, she will never develop like she'll grow older but she's not gonna ever get beyond where she is right now so so she's like at that 18 24 month stage so communication with her is really challenging she makes a lot of noises you know she grunts or she'll just laugh or whatever uh, uh. Um, and when she speaks she will speak like in just one one word at a time or you know like just a single word mira mira like look look but she can't communicate you know, really beyond that. So 18, 24 months old. And so we have kids, a lot of little kids in our church, right? And you know, the little ones, like they can move around at that stage and they just grab whatever they get their hands on. They put stuff in their mouths, you know, 
well, that's this girl, but in the body of a six-year-old. So she doesn't, so she's got the coordination and the agility, right, of a six-year-old. So what that means if you're providing respite care for her is eyes on her all the time, all the time. You can't look away because you don't know what she's going to grab hold of, right? In fact, they even told us um, if she wakes up in the middle of the night, she might start wandering around your house. And one of the things she'll do, sometimes she'll turn on the faucets and like leave the water running. And sometimes she'll lock herself in the bathroom or bedroom and she doesn't know how to unlock the door. You know, and so while we had those girls in respite care, Pilar actually slept on the couch downstairs because we had just bought bunk beds for foster care and God provided sisters for us to break into bunk beds, right? So Pilar's sleeping downstairs because if Eileen wakes up and comes out the room, someone's got to be there to, to watch her. So, <clears throat> so man, like we're not sleeping well and like you just... You got to watch this girl. It's sweet as shit. Like watch her all the time, you know, and when she's communicating, it's just, it's through noises. And so Sunday afternoon, uh, Eileen's sitting on my lap and she's facing me and, you know, uh, she, very affectionate. Both of the girls just love hugs and stuff and love to just play and whatever. And like, you, you just can't really rest. And I've already, look, I've, I've told you worse stories. You guys know now I'm a complete total jerk. But so I lean sitting on my lap and I'm like just, you know, and she wants to, I don't even know what she's trying to say, you know, and, and I just looked at that sweet little face and you want to know what came to mind? Like God spoke to me in that moment. I'm going to read to you what God put on my, my heart and broke it if I can then the righteous will answer him saying Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you and when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you and the king will answer and say to them truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine even the least of them you did it to me You want to see God today? Find the least of these and provide for them. I mean, I looked at that sweet girl's face and I thought, the least of these. Eight years old, six years old, the six-year-old special needs, these girls came from El Salvador by themselves on foot and I'm guessing probably tried to hop on a train through Mexico. Slept outside. Relied on the kindness of others to just give them food on the journey. The least of these, man. <clears throat> Listen, I know our new president wants to build a wall. I'm just telling y'all. If that wall starts getting built and someone in secret undercover at night is breaking it down, I don't know anything about that, okay? I say that jokingly. I really don't know what the answer is, church, but um, anyway, to the wall situation. But let's close. 
<clears throat> with verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There we have that promise again of the present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Did you notice the change? Jesus goes from blessed are those or blessed are the to verse 11. Blessed are you. So remember the context, right? So Jesus has his disciples. He takes them up to the mountain. There's a crowd surrounding, kind of listening in. Jesus has been saying, blessed are those. Blessed are they who mourn. Now he turns to his new followers and he's telling them what's going to happen. You follow me and you live like this. If you are gentle, if you are righteous, if you are merciful, if, you're in, if you are pure in heart, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You will be, you will have insults thrown at you. You'll be falsely accused of things. You will be persecuted and even killed if you live like that. That is a personal message to them and to us, to citizens of the kingdom. And I don't know if you saw it, but that word you, that's one sentence in verse 11. And if you write in your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want you to underline that word. You. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Four times he says you. He's making a point. This is you he's talking to and me. But the key word is me on account of me. So if you write in your Bibles, put brackets around that phrase, on account of me. We suffer sometimes because of our own, you know, bad decisions that's not persecution if you go to jail for something you did or you get kicked out of school or you make an f and that's not persecution it's only persecution if, if it's happening to you because you're proclaiming the name of christ so he wants you and i to know that if we choose to follow him that we must die to ourselves because persecution will come our way we will suffer for spe even speaking the name of the king. And when that happens, we can celebrate. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Your reward will be great in heaven. You may have some reward even here in the present, but your reward will come in full in heaven. So as we close out our evening, I just want to make a couple of <clears throat> quick points of application for you, if you don't mind. The first one is this. This list of, of qualities of a citizen of God's kingdom, it's not a checklist like you do these things, you check them off and, okay, now I can get into heaven. That's not how it works. But rather, because we are already citizens of heaven, right? There's is the kingdom, present tense. Because we're already citizens, we should live like this. We ought to serve our king who says, this is what life looks like if you want to live in my kingdom. The second thing I want to point out is that, and I've talked about it a little bit already, you know, it's been a turbulent, 
political season like none I've certainly ever seen in my 47 plus years of life. Uh, but regardless of your political views and who you voted for or voted against, I just want to remind each of us that, you know, we can get worked up over politics. I think because we, we find our, we put our hope in a person and we think the president will make us happy, will bring us some level of happiness. But the king has spoken and he's told you what it means to be happy in his words. So, Jesus, making him known, is our mission. And he does not belong to any political party. And third, we ended on a couple of verses about persecution. And Mr. C came last week uh, and, and had some calendars to share. This is what they look like. They're awesome. There's a stack in the back. If you didn't grab one, grab one on the way out. Every day of the year shows you a Christian group somewhere in the world that's being persecuted and how you can pray for them. And in the very back, as Mr. C pointed out last week, there's actually, so you go, I don't know how to pray for the persecuted. Well, there's 10 ways you can pray for the persecuted. So today, January 14th, is to pray for Christians in North Korea. There are about 35,000 Christians who are being held in labor camps in North Korea. Mm. So I'm going to read, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward, is in, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as you leave tonight, don't leave right away. I want you to, you know, stick around as we always do and fellowship some more, but grab a calendar, pray for the persecuted. Thank you, guys. Let me pray, and I'm going to ask the band to come on up and finish with uh, two more songs. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you, Lord, and we claim your promise that the kingdom of heaven is ours today that we can be citizens today, not by abiding by certain rules or guidelines, but simply by submitting our lives to the king, by surrendering to him, making him the Lord of our lives. And Lord, we thank you for your word that it is true that it counters all the lies that the world tells us will make us happy, would bring us happiness. For the only true, eternal, lasting happiness comes in a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be humble in spirit. May our sin grieve us. But may we celebrate when we're persecuted and celebrate the promise that there is a day coming when Jesus the King will return and we will experience all of these things in their completion. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.